So if you could head back to your seats, that would be wonderful. Grab out your Bibles. And as you grab your Bibles, we're going to head to the book of Habakkuk. I said last week for the Americans amongst us, Habakkuk, tomato, tomato. And I got a message from a good friend of ours, used to be with us for some years, an American by the name of Gary. He said, oh, thank you so much. I felt so blessed that you'd translate the sermon into American for us. So Gary, if you're listening, blessings to you, brother. Now we're back to Australia. Habakkuk it is. So before we do anything else, let's just commit this time to the Lord. Father, we just thank you for your grace. We thank you that it is available to us today without measure, without restriction, without conditions. And we pray as we come to your word, we thank you that your word is alive. It is a two-edged sword, and I pray that it would go deep, that you would penetrate, that you'd go to the places that we need you to go. We come not for information, but Lord, for transformation. So through the power of your spirit, would your word bear fruit in our lives. Help us to hear your voice this morning. Just come Holy Spirit and do whatever you desire to do in our midst, in us and through us this day, we pray. In your wonderful name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Are we alive and well? Great. So Habakkuk is where we're heading. We've begun last week. I've, I've had on my heart for some time to do this journey through Habakkuk, one of the books that perhaps is too easy to skip over, and yet there's such a depth of richness in here, in all of these books in the Old Testament, the Minor Prophets, but particularly in this book has always encouraged me. So I'm hoping that will be the case for us too. We're going to read from chapter 1, verse 5, and just to get us up to speed for those who perhaps weren't with us last week, we set the scene, we look at, looked at the opening, the introduction and the conclusion, what I entitled the journey of Habakkuk. He goes from this place of of heartfelt lament. That's the opening four verses of this particular book, this, this cry in his heart, God, how long and, and why? I'm seeing so much around me suffering, injustice. It's this, this heartfelt plea and cry to the Lord. And yet he then concludes, and as I said, this is why we're examining this journey. He goes from this place of Sorrow, and the entire last chapter of this book is this praise declaration. It's a, a song of proclamation of how good God is. It goes from sorrow to singing, from pain to praise, from this place as he begins of, of utter desperation to conclude with this incredible proclamation or declaration. He goes from faithless surroundings, struggling to even find God, to this picture of faith-filled living. And so that's behind or the, the background behind the title of this series of, of faithful living in faithless times. And so the journey for us last week was to look at this language of lament, to examine this journey and find hopefully some encouragement and this reality of the world is full of things that aren't, aren't often good and all happiness and pleasure. There's some pain. 
There's some suffering. There's some difficult difficulty. But we have this language of lament to help us in the journey through what is at times a broken world. And even this past week, I was sitting down there one particular morning, my habitual routine. I made a cup of coffee. I sat there at the kitchen bench just to enjoy that moment, peace, moment of peace and solace. In the morning, I had my iPad there, logged onto the news, and one of my little girls, she came up and she nestled in next to me, and I didn't think to check the news first. But then up popped on the front page this horrible story about the 39 people. Did we see that in the, the truck in the UK? Sitting there in a moment's solace, peace and quiet. She's like, Daddy, what's this all about? thought, there goes my nice, quiet coffee. Supposed to be feeling sorry for me right now, but I thought, no, we'll, we'll click on this particular article and we look together and obviously a horrific story dealing, detailing human trafficking and I could see my little girl as I kind of journeyed with her and walked her through what was just a horrific account of some of the evil that's in the world around us. She said, Dad, how, how can this planet be so evil? How can people be so wicked? And I said, I, I know, it is, it is a wrestle. And it is that exact wrestle that Habakkuk helps us through. Helps us not only find perspective in the midst of the stuff of life, but helps us work through in a way that moves us to discover this faith, this faith that is unshakable, this faith that we find not in the absence of stuff around us, stuff we're wrestling through ourselves, but this faith that we find in the midst that stands and it endures. It is too easy to live in our little bubble. We talked about this last week, caught up in our little space. I'm just here to enjoy my little coffee. And at times, tragically, even to present this gospel, this good news that's a little one-sided, that's a little prosperity and sugar canes and fairy floss, but actually lacking any substance, particularly when the rubber hits the road. I mean, that's, that's when we need faith the most, when we're facing the, the death of a lost one, when we're trying to make sense of some of the circumstances of life. That is the time that we need faith the most. And my concern is that we have in some ways, in some instances, we've developed a generation of somewhat weak Christians. We just pick out the nice, comfortable verses. We just go the nice, easy, comfortable places. It's about blessing and prosperity, and God wants to do all these amazing things. But we give people no theology of where is God in the midst of the other side of the coin when things don't go so well. I was uh, watching this particular video probably six weeks ago. Someone passed it on, and it was... Uh, a video of these Christians, I think they were Bible college students, if I'm correct, in a remote area of China. Incredible persecution. And this video was detailing the delivery of a box of Bibles. And so these Bibles came and you could see like literally their faces lit up. Many of them had tears in their eyes. They grabbed these Bibles. They held them close. They were weeping over this reality of just having a Bible to read. I don't know about you, but I see something like that and I think I need to get saved again. You know, like, Lord, you've got to do something because I'm missing something in this whole journey. 
I'm a little too comfortable. So I want us to wrestle through this. I want us to do it well. And one further um, word of introduction is Habakkuk wrestles well. You see, the problem is that for so many of us, certainly for people outside faith, is that we don't come to any circumstance or particularly from a Christian worldview, we don't come to God to be redefined. We come to redefine according to our parameters. And that's so often the issue is that we, we come to a circumstance or a situation and we say, all right, how can we fit that within my understanding, within my little parameters of what I believe to be right and true and just? Whereas Habakkuk doesn't do this. And we, we talked about very briefly last week in chapter 2, verse 1, he, he cries out to God, but then he responds openly. He says, but God... I know that you're holy, and I know that you're just, and I know that you're sovereign, so therefore you need to come and redefine me. I'm not here trying to redefine you and get you to fit in my parameters. I'm here trying to make sense of this, so you do whatever you need to do, because I know that you're there. He, he never questions God's existence or God's sovereignty or God's goodness. He questions God's work in God. This doesn't make sense. I'm not here to redefine you. I'm here to be redefined by you. So come and do what you need to do to reshape my thinking so that it lines up with the truth and the reality of who you are. And that's how we wrestle well. Not to redefine, but to be redefined by. So let's read chapter 1. More than enough introduction. Let's read from the Word of God, Habakkuk chapter 1, Habakkuk, sorry, verse 5. And this is the Lord's response. So he's cried out, God, how long? This is, there's, there's iniquity, you're standing idly by, there's destruction, there's violence, there's all this stuff going on, it's on the weekly news, and there's justice is nowhere to be found. This is God's response in verse 5. It says, Habakkuk, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe even if I told you. Now, if that was the end of the story, that is happy days right there. Habakkuk's cried out. God said, don't worry. I'm at work. I'm fixing it up. It's all going to be okay. Now, he does actually promise that, but what comes next is going to serve to only confuse Habakkuk more. Let's read on. For behold, says God, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that's another word there for the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings that are not their own. And we'll go on in just a moment. So this is what God says. He says, look and see, I'm doing something. I am at work, and here's what it's going to look like. I'm raising up the Babylonians. Now, for Habakkuk, we need to put ourselves in his shoes. This was a period in Israel's history, in world history, where there was this incredibly incredible change, a period of extraordinary change. There was power centers that were shifting. We had the Assyrians who'd been dominant for the better part of a century. They defeated the northern kingdom in 722. And as their ascendancy weakened, the Babylonians began to rise. They were the arising nation just on the horizon. Eventually, they went on to defeat Egypt in 605 BC, and they became 
easily the most dominant player in the region. So the Babylonian nation is arising. Already the dawn of a new age is upon them. But here's the thing. The Babylonians were known as a violent, bloodthirsty people. Idolatrous. They weren't good, righteous folk. They weren't the good neighbors that are offering to help others and you know, give you the shirt off my back. This was a wicked, ungodly nation. And so here in Habakkuk's wrestling, he says, God, where are you? And God says, I'm working, and this is what it's going to look like. So as you can imagine, Habakkuk has a few more questions. <laughs> Ever have one of those moments where you're like, maybe I shouldn't have asked that question in the first place. Lord, help me make sense. So just to get through the end of this particular passage, it says that in verse 8, the horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. The horse, horsemen press proudly on. They come like an eagle, swift to devour. They come for violence. They gather captives like the sand. At the kings they scoff. The rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. They pile up the earth and take it. Then they sweep like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. What part of that description is, is good and nice and pleasant? Absolutely nothing. So Habakkuk again. In verse 12 he says, All right, well, let me ask a second question. Let me seek a little further clarity from you, God. He says, God, are you not from everlasting? Are you not the Holy One? Lord, you have ordained them as judgment. Lord, you have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes then to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? The very logical response is like, God, all right, you've got to help me here. Help me understand how on earth that is a part of your plan. I'm asking where you are, and you've said, I'm at work, but it's not going to look like anything that you've ever seen. And in fact, the people that I'm going to use to accomplish my plan are the most wicked and godless nation that currently exists on the face of of the earth. Well, just to sort of sneak ahead a little bit, because what I want to do is really focus on the Lord's first response. But so that you know where I am going, where we're heading, there's three assurances that will come up as God deals with Habakkuk's second question. And we'll talk about these next week. Number one, in chapter 2, verse 4, this is what we talked about last week being the catalyst passage in this verse. There is a faith to be found even in the absence of any other realities that are good in our natural thinking. There is a faith to be found there. He'll go on to say that wickedness will have an end, that judgment will come, and that justice will prevail. And chapter 2 verse 14, this wonderful passage, God assures Habakkuk, that the earth will be filled with the glory and the knowledge of God. There's a faith, wickedness will have an end, judgment will come, justice will prevail, and the whole earth will be filled with the glory of God. Are we still okay? Are we awake? We're alive? No one's running for the door just yet. I did tell you this is a wrestle. This is Habakkuk really wrestling through some weighty topics and some weighty issues. So let's have a look then at the Lord's 
answer to Habakkuk. And there's really two parts to this that I believe are helpful not only for the prophet in his wrestling, but they're helpful for us today. As we look around, as we see this stuff that's going on every night, as you watch the news, as we're personally aware of the brokenness of the world that we live in. So number one, God says this very clear. There's an invitation to Habakkuk. There's an invitation to us to look around and see. He says, look among the nations, see, look and see. Open your eyes, take a deeper look, look past the surface because that which you're seeing as absent of my will and my purpose and my plan is actually, if you look deep enough, evidence of the way that I work. Different than what you might think it, it would look like. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he's not saying look away from it, look elsewhere. Don't, just, just don't look at that particular bit, Habakkuk. Have, have a look over here. Let's go back to the, the candy store and the, the fairy floss and you know, look for all the good stuff and that's where you'll find me. See, the point is he's saying look, look right in the midst of that. Look right in the reality of that which you are struggling through because if you're willing to do that, if you're willing to look deeper beyond the surface, that is in fact the very place that you will find me outworking my purpose. So let's think that through. You see, one of the most common arguments that, that I hear, particularly from people of a, an, an agnostic and atheist worldview, is that the reality of suffering and pain and death, all that we see that all of us would say, yes, we're aware of that, is in itself the nail in the coffin argument that there is no God. There's suffering, therefore, the conclusion is, signed, sealed, and delivered, there is no God. Now, let's think through that argument for a moment and just, I know it's Sunday morning, work with me a little, put your thinking caps on, let's examine that. See, first of all, it always seems hypocritical for a secular atheist or agnostic to hold up a Christian worldview against the wall in this area when by definition it can offer no answer itself. Because from an agnostic atheist point of view, this you know, suffering doesn't even exist. It's just the, it's the natural course of life. It's in some ways almost to be celebrated. It's survival of the fittest. It's evolution at its finest. If it's there, it's just really a figment of our imagination. So there can be no firm definition or answer or perspective ever given. It's really the elephant in the room of atheism because we see suffering, we feel it, we click on the news as I did with my little girl this very week. We know it's there. This is wrong. This is evil. It's like we know it's there, but then we have to, by definition, ignore it. We have to just forget about it and move. It's not really there. We're just imagining. We've just got to move on. But it also reveals a greater issue. You see, whenever this question is asked, it is by nature framed against a backdrop of morality. Let me explain what I mean. There's a guy by the name of Ravi Zacharias. Many of you would know him and his writings. And he has this great little chapter in a book, Can Man Live Without God? This is the title. I love the title. Where is anti-theism when it hurts? Isn't that good? I chuckle every time I read it. Where is anti-theism where it hurts? And this is the conclusion that he makes, and he argues it far better than I ever would. 
He said, a philosophy that espouses no belief in God cannot even justify the question of suffering. You see, it can't. It doesn't matter how you frame it, life without God, and particularly in this area of suffering, only ends up in a vicious circle that raises questions but offers nothing. It can, by definition, not offer any perspective, any help, any worldview that is meaningful in return. And so we should be holding every worldview to account for its particular perspective on this area of suffering. They can't say, well, your view is no good when they offer no re- reliable or reality of an alternative. But let's think through this a bit more. See, I think it's fascinating that we live in a society that loves to hold these arguments up, these anti-theism, anti-God arguments, and yet the moment that we're faced with the reality and the ultimate reality of suffering, which surely is death, it's like there's something in there that twigs within us and we all become just a little bit religious. Like how many funerals have you been to and someone's there who you know has not lived a, a Christian life or a religious life at all? And what is said about that person? Maybe your experience is different than mine, but I've never been to a funeral yet where someone gets up there and said, well, he lived a completely meaningless, purposeless existence and then breathed his last, and that was the end of the story. Probably there is some out there. There'd be some hardened atheist who said, this is what I once said about me at my funeral. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. My experience is it's not. It doesn't matter their particular worldview. In that moment of being faced with the reality of suffering, where do we turn? We turn to these cliches, well, he was a good person. He lived a good life. You know, he's, he's watching over us. He's, he's in a better place, yes? Someone nod like that's your experience too. And, and, and I've been incredibly frustrated sometimes at those moments thinking, how is it? We, we, we spend all our lives holding up these arguments against God, but when faced with suffering, it's like, well, all of a sudden we're, we're looking for something. We, in, there's something about those moments that actually causes us to reach out. In fact, C.S. Lewis, he has this little book called The Problem of Pain, and this is his main thesis in there, the main point that he develops. He says that actually pain, suffering, and ultimately death is, in his words, God's greatest megaphone to a morally deaf world. See, rather than these realities being some evidence, as often we hold them up to be to say there's no God, this is God's megaphone calling us, saying, actually, there's more here. You can't even ask the question without it being framed in the reality of of a moral God and a moral universe, and there being right and wrong and suffering and injustice. Exactly what God is inviting Habakkuk into here. He's saying, I know that you're looking and you're seeing this all as evidence that I'm not around, but actually, Actually, I'm giving you an invitation. If you look deeper into this reality that you're struggling with, if you genuinely are willing to look deeper, the only way that you will ever make sense of it, atheism won't help, agnosticism, the only way you'll ever make sense of this is in the reality and the understanding of a sovereign and loving and good and just God. So that's the first invitation. God says to Habakkuk, he says, look and see. I'm inviting you to actually look. Look deeper beyond what you're seeing, and that's where you're going to find me. But the second point takes this to a whole new level. He doesn't just say, look and see. He says, 
Habakkuk, this is what you need to realize is that all that you're seeing, this rising up of a wicked nation, this is not only just something I'm allowing, but I'm using it for my glory. I'm using suffering to accomplish my purposes. Now, we've got to admit at face level that this is an astounding, surprising description of the way that a good God works. Instead of peace, he ordains war. Instead of security, he says, I'm bringing violence. Instead of what we would see as good, he brings what we would see as being evil. Instead of life, he ordains death. Confusing, yes? Anyone confused? But here is the reality that I think is important for us to grasp. Because if you peer beneath the veneer and the surface, what is being presented here is so complete a picture of God's sovereignty that nothing is left beyond his grasp. In fact, God is saying, I can even use a wicked, sinful, godless nation to accomplish my purposes. See, if that's genuinely the case, and I believe it is, and we'll look at this more in a moment, then the implications are significant because it it chastens us, it stops us from saying, well, God is only involved in the good bits of life that we can see. And this gives a picture so holistic and encompassing that it enables us to see the working of God in the midst of everything. Whatever is going on around us, that's the certainty that we carry with us, is that God is actually at work. God is using all of it, not just the good bits, the good and the bad and the struggles and the success and the victories and the battles. It's all being used by him to further his plans for us and for human history. So let's look at the reality of that for Habakkuk. And I understand this is a little more thinking through and weighty than normal, but bear with me. I did warn you last week, I said, bring a packed lunch, maybe an overnight bag. Did anyone listen? You came ready, ready to go? I I did warn you in advance. I said it's going to be a little bit more of a wrestle as we work through what are significant issues. And even then, this is very very brief and high level. But let's have a look at this example and exactly how that played out. And then I want to pull out a few things for us personally as we walk on our own journey of wrestling through these significant issues. So God has specifically said to Habakkuk, he says, I'm I'm doing things. Have a look. Peer back the veneer and you'll see me there. And in fact, I'm going to use what you see as wicked, the rising up of this nation, and it's actually going to be used to accomplish my purposes. Now, in order to to, to understand why that was necessary and what happened, we need just a very brief little bit of history. We've talked about the, the political landscape shifting just in terms of the nations surrounding Judea, but... During this time, Judea itself was in this downward spiral. There was crisis, rebellion, and there was ultimate destruction. It was one of the more difficult periods, undoubtedly, in Israel's history. There was this brief moment, you can read about this in Kings and Chronicles, under King Josiah, who ruled from 640 to 609, some opportunity for for renewal and revival and independence, but ultimately when he died in, in battle, Second Chronicles 35, from that point onward there was a series of bad kings that led the southern kingdom into 
utter devastation and ruin and ultimately destruction. And not only was there this spiral of crisis and rebellion, there was without any doubt a period that could only be marked by this complete and comprehensive religious decay. These people had turned away from the worship of Yahweh. They were on a one-way path to destruction. And yet, as you look at that scenario, it's also interesting to me that there was more prophetic voices in this period of Israel history than any others that we read about in the Bible, the biblical prophets. Even as this nation spirals out of control, God sends his prophetic voices. He says, turn back. Turn back to me. You're going down a path that's leading one way. He warns them. He chastens them. He does everything within his power. He looks for every other alternative and option. And ultimately, the nation still chooses to rebel and turn away from God. So what does God do despite his constant warnings? Things spiral out of control. God uses the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, these wicked, godless people. And how does he use them? Does he send them to wipe out his people? No, the answer is, in fact, quite the opposite. He uses them as a surgeon's scalpel, as a tool in his hand. You see, it was the the Babylonians who would preserve a remnant, a remnant of people who would turn back to faith, who would eventually be sent back to the land, who would rebuild the broken walls, and eventually from whom the Messiah would come and his purposes through Israel would be fulfilled. And even in the midst of that, even in the midst of what seemed like devastation and destruction was this guy called Nebuchadnezzar who is worthy of a sermon series himself. This colourful character who built statues and caused people to to bow down and met God in the midst of the flames of the the fiery furnace and went crazy for a few years and was off eating grass. And yet ultimately, you can read this in Daniel 4, he, he was the ruler of the known world, the most powerful empire in the land at that time. And what does he do in Daniel chapter 4? He writes his testimony letter about how God saved him and delivered him and how he's the one true God and he sends it all the way throughout the empire proclaiming who Yahweh, who God is. It's the greatest proclamation of Yahweh anywhere recorded in scripture that comes through an idolatrous, bloodthirsty, pagan king. Here's the point in that specific historical example, and it is worth us developing a little, that even God's pronouncement of judgment when seen in its overarching context, it plays its own specific role. God's allowance for suffering very clearly here was actually an act along the way towards his salvation of the people and ultimately his salvation of the world. See, it all plays a part in God's grand scheme. That's why, as we fast forward to the New Testament, Peter, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though for now for a little while you may have to suffer grief. There may be trials. It doesn't say there definitely will. So there will be stuff. There may well be stuff. But rejoice in this, that the proven character of your faith, more precious than God, which perishes even though refined through fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, there is a present purpose. 
that there may be stuff, but it's going to be used by him to accomplish his purpose. And there is the big picture that we know that, yes, there might be stuff now, but we know the end of the story. So it's like uh, my wife and I, uh, who's got Netflix here? Anyone got Netflix? You're not sure if you should own up, because I think, where's this sermon illustration going? But no, we, we love Netflix. We found some great TV shows on there, and I have this really bad habit that if it's a particularly suspenseful, dramatic series, which sometimes we, we get hooked on, I always want to skip to the end. Anyone like that? I never want to find one that you've got to wait a week to get out you know, the next episode. I want to make sure it's all there, and I want to make sure I've checked the last episode, watched through it, just to make sure, yeah, that's right just to make sure it's actually worthy of my time. You know, if I get to the end and I'm like, forget that, this, this is not worth my time. I said, what, what a waste of effort. See, it's the end that helps illuminate the momentary struggle and stuff that sometimes we can face. So there's a big picture and there's a present purpose that even when we can't see it, God is using suffering for our growth and for his glory. It's, it's just fascinating that we're in a society that's so averse to suffering. You know, there was periods in church history where not only did believers embrace suffering, often they'd go looking for it. It's like, I haven't got enough suffering in my life. I'm just going to lie on my side for a bit and walk barefoot and sleep out. I mean, they did crazy things, all because they somehow got a hold of this, of God's actually going to use suffering for my purpose. So if, it's not, if there's not enough... I'm just going to top up my suffering levels a little and make sure I'm suffering enough for Jesus. Now, I'm not suggesting that we go looking for suffering. That's not the point of this sermon. We're all moving away from that. But I am suggesting that suffering is there for a purpose and that when it comes, there is a grace for us to embrace the work of Christ not only in all the good stuff, Lord, bless me and anoint me and give me money, you know, that's... I'm not saying that's bad, like let's pray for God's blessing, but let's also have a grace to embrace God in the midst of the not-so-good stuff, the difficulty. Lord, my husband and my wife's walked out, my kids are in rebellion, whatever it is. I'm going through stuff, but I'm embracing the process because I know you're using it for my growth and my good, and ultimately it will all be about your glory. So if that was the end of the story, as you know, we've wrestled through, if that was the only purpose of suffering for me, that's, that's enough. Okay, there's, there's a perspective there in the middle. I can peel back the veneer. I can see God. I can embrace its work. I can know that there's a growth here and there's a glory of God that's coming. I mean, God allows it. He's going to use it. To me, that's enough. But really, when it comes to the broader biblical story, we're only just getting started. This is only the tip of the iceberg. And I have to mention this one more thing, and I don't want to develop it too much because I know we're running out of time, and our main purpose is really to look at this particular book. But you see, we see this incredible reality as we read through Scripture, as we have our eyes open to the reality of our God, that ultimately... There's an even greater context and purpose to suffering. And it's not just that we might suffer, that some good might come out of it, that we might grow. Ultimately, God allowed suffering, not that we might suffer, 
but that he might come and suffer for us. See, the gospel is not removed from suffering. It is centered upon it. If you remove suffering, there's no cross. There's no salvation. There's there's no savior. Ultimately, the greatest suffering becomes God's greatest act of salvation. This God who allowed suffering because it was the very thing, the only thing that could ultimately defeat the work of darkness. So if you want to talk about innocent suffering, we all have our examples. Biblically speaking, we might talk about Job. Often people will talk about, well, cancer and children. And there's this wrestling there. Death, sorrow, suffering. But the ultimate example of innocent suffering is the Lamb of God. Pure and spotless. Hanging there, bleeding, beaten nail-pierced hands hanging on a cross, taking upon himself the sin of the world. And you see, we look at that, we think, well, what made his immeasurable suffering worth it? Why, God? Why would you do that? Why would you allow it? Why would you put yourself through that? Does it make any sense? The answer is very clear. It says Hebrews 12.2. It says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What was that joy? Some people say, well, it's the joy of being back with his father. I'm sure he was looking forward to that. But that wasn't a joy. He had that before he came. That's not the reason he came. He came for the one thing that he did not already have. The joy set before him was you and it was me. And he counted the cost and he said, this is going to, hurt like you wouldn't imagine we can never comprehend his suffering but he said it's worth it to pay the price for that which i will gain which is us now we look at that example and we have that same reality that it's going to hurt there's going to be some suffering there's going to be some stuff what makes the immeasurable suffering worth it for us he does the fact that at the end of the day, we know what we are going to get. You see, so profound is the reality of this picture that it's often said the biblical worldview is the only one that accepts the reality of evil and suffering. It's there, we know. And yet it gives cause and purpose to it and also offers God-given strength and sustenance through it. It's the only worldview. It's the only thing. Nobody else has any perspective or reality but the suffering that we feel that it's all around us than the reality of the God that we worship and serve. Can we get the worship team to come back out? Let me just uh, finish with this one last story. I know we've covered some ground and it's not a perfect illustration anyway, but hopefully some form of encouragement. You know, there, there's, there's stuff that we face. And as I was preparing this, I was just reminded of an instance where we had two of our girls who had these, this um, quite significant problem with their tonsils and adenoids and they were having trouble eating, they were having trouble sleeping at night, like there was some complicated health issues that we were experiencing. And within a couple of weeks, we had two of the girls operated on. If you've been through that surgery, it's not particularly nice and pleasant. 
some ways it's minor surgery, in other ways it's your throat and there's, there's blood and I don't deal very well with anything to do with that. But I've always been the one out of my wife and I, where whenever there's needles, anything, she's like, here you go, here's the baby, good luck, see you on the other end. So I'm just hoping my kids grow up and they don't have these repressed memories of their father. It's like every time I get a needle or something painful happens, you're there. Just dad, dad's there. But I went with these two girls through this, this surgery procedure and one of them it was, um, and they were a couple of weeks apart, one was very straightforward. I was there in the room and they let you come in to where, you know, the place where they give them the, the needle, put them to sleep and then you see them on the other side. And, and the first one that went through, she was okay, you know, obviously a bit nervous, got the injection, went off to sleep. I left the room and, and then um, saw her as she came through the other side of the surgery. But... The second one I went in with, and I was with my girl. I was in the room. I was standing where I was supposed to be. I could see her on the bed over there. And all of a sudden, I think it was, you know, there's three or four people around in the white coats and the big needle comes. And I could see, like, the panic levels were rising. And then she just started freaking out, like panic attack in the middle of the theater. And, and they were there like, we don't know what to do. They said, look, could you come over and just try and settle, settle her down? There's no way we can get this needle in. And I tell you what, I came over and I saw the, the pain and I saw the, you know, just the terror that was in her eyes. And it was all I could do just to stop myself from ripping her off the bed and racing her out of there, you know, fighting off the men in white coats. And it's like a bad dream. And I resisted the urge and I just sat down with her and they said look even if you can just get it to calm down enough we can maybe give her the oxygen mask and then give her the needle there's no point in trying to even try with when she's this distressed so I just sat down with her and I I stroked her head and I said sweetheart I, I, I know this is hard I know this is tough I'm not gonna lie to you it's like it's 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 tough it's gonna hurt but I can promise you that I'm with you and that I'll never leave you and I can promise that I'll be with you on the other side. And it, you know, in a very small way, that shows us the reality of an eternal Father. He says, in this world, there's stuff. There is. I'm not going to lie to you. He's been there. He's hung on a cross. He's bled. He's been beaten and scorned and abused. He's not going to lie and say it's all going to be fairy tales and roses. He says that there's, there's stuff. There's stuff going. But, but here's what I can promise you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That it will all be worth it. And that I'll be waiting for you on the other side. That's where we're going. It's going to be the biggest party he's going to be the first one there with wide open arms. You see? You see? That's the reality of the God that we worship. And that's the journey of suffering that helps us discover the God who's worthy of everything. The one who we can find in the midst of anything. Would you stand this morning? going to end in worship and I want to give you a moment just to just to reflect as we respond in praise to God just on the reality 
of a God who invites us to look deeper, look beyond the stuff, and to find Him afresh.